Two weeks ago last night, a car plunged off a bridge into the Spanish Fork River in Utah. Landing on its roof, the car lay out of sight under the bridge for 14 hours until a fisherman spotted, spotted it and called 911. By the time the rescuers arrived, the driver, 25-year-old Jenny Grosbeck, had been dead for hours. Somehow, her 18-month-old daughter, Lily, survived, strapped safely in her car seat, hanging upside down, inches above the frigid water. The story made headlines around the world. But one significant detail received less coverage. As they neared the vehicle, all four police officers distinctly heard a woman's voice calling for help. One of them answered her, hang in there, we're trying our best to get in there. Adrenaline surging, they heaved the car right side up. Inside, they found only the toddler alive and she barely conscious. All four of us can swear that we heard somebody inside the car saying, help, Officer Jared Warner recalls. It was not a child's voice. It was clear as day, says Officer Tyler Beddoes. It wasn't just in our heads. It was a positive boost for every one of us because I think it pushed us to go harder a little longer to flip the car over. For two nights, I've laid awake trying to figure out exactly what it could be. The mother couldn't speak. I'm not a typically religious guy. Where and why it came from, I'm not sure. Now, you may have read the story of Lily's rescue in the Boston Globe or the New York Times, but you wouldn't have read anything about the mysterious voice in those responsible newspapers because they left that part out. As the Times might say, it wasn't fit to print. Intelligent, educated, rational people don't believe in communication with the dead until it happens to them. Descended from Ralph Waldo Emerson, swallowed in the affluence of a family fortune, Suki Forbes was happily married with three beautiful children. On August 18, 2004, six-year-old Charlotte woke not feeling well. Within hours, she was dead of malignant hypothermia, hyperthermia a rare genetic disorder that makes a fever so hot it kills. Well-trained in New England Unitarian Reserve, Suki didn't know how to grieve. You're okay, her mother insisted. Just do what you have to do. So Suki helped plan the memorial service and kept her surviving children busy. It was many weeks before she could cry the little girl whose hair she had braided, who had sung songs and whispered secrets. Where had she gone? A friend invited Suki to hear a medium named Suzanne Northrup. Suki was intrigued but cautious. She paid for her ticket in cash and told no one her name. In a Holiday Inn auditorium, Northrop began to talk about deceased people with whom she claimed to be in communication, and members of the audience would raise their hands if they thought Northrop might be describing someone they knew. If Northrop was a phony, 
she was an incredibly good guesser. She spoke of a middle-aged man with heart trouble and three daughters. Why am I seeing a remote control, Northrop asked. It looks to me like a remote control in his casket. Oh my God, exclaimed one of, the th uh, one of three sisters, we buried daddy with the remote. <laughs> right, Suki thought. She could be a plant, the, the shill in the audience, Carnival Huckster 101. Then, then Northrop said, I'm getting a girl. She's about seven years old. She died very suddenly. She has other siblings. I'm getting a hot fever. Suki raised her hand. Northrop strode over. Northrop mentioned a brother and a sister. Then she said, she wants to acknowledge something you carry in your pocket all the time. It's sort of white and sparkly. Suki started to cry. In her pocket at that moment was a tiny, white, sparkly, plastic angel. She had found on an otherwise bare shelf in Charlotte's bathroom after her death. She had carried it in her pocket ever since, telling no one, no one, not even her husband. She said she put it on a shelf for you to find, Northrop continued. She went on to describe the display of Christmas lights Suki's neighbors had put up in Charlotte's memory and more details about Charlotte's family and her death, which she couldn't have known because there had been nothing in the papers and anyway, Northrop didn't even know Suki's name. But it was the angel in her pocket that convinced Suki that Charlotte somehow was talking to Northrop. No one on the planet, she recalls, knew about that angel but me and Charlotte. Suki and her husband scheduled a private session with Northrop who told them intimate details about their family and friends, some of which they didn't even know until they checked afterward. Suki now sees Charlotte not just as her daughter who died young, but as an ageless spirit. Knowing that she's still present, Suki says, has made me feel vastly less lonely, and it has brought a calmness and comfort to my soul that has not left me. Last July, I went to see Suki Forbes at the Harvard Bookstore, where she read from her book, The Angel in My Pocket. I found her thoughtful, down-to-earth, and completely credible. Certainly, as a Forbes, she has no financial need to invent a story for publication. The truth is, I hadn't thought much about the possibility of communicating with the dead. The whole idea of mediumship seemed pretty dubious. Hadn't spiritualism and seances been discredited a century ago? Grieving families are easy prey for scam artists. Suki Forbes made me wonder. So when Suzanne Northrup offered a seminar near Hartford last November, I checked her out. Garrulous and ribald, she is very different from Suki Forbes and equally convincing. Working the crowd of about 150, she made an amazing number of hits which seemed to far exceed chance. 
Northrop, standing before an audience member. Your father's name is Joseph. Answer, yes. Northrop, your father knew he was going to pass. Audience member, he committed suicide. Northrop, I'm getting the name Helen or Helen. Audience member, that was my mother's roommate in the nursing home. There were just so many more spot-on statements than ambiguous or incorrect. Of course, that's my observation. It's not a scientific study. It's not easy for scientists to pursue empirical study of mediumship, because even if they can get funding for what's considered paranormal phenomena, they risk ridicule and ostracization from their peers. One scientist who has taken the risk is Gary Schwartz, professor of psychology and medicine at the University of Arizona. Dr. Schwartz earned his PhD in psychology across the street at Harvard and served as a professor of psychology and psychiatry at Yale. Schwartz and his colleagues at Arizona have performed rigorous laboratory tests upon purported mediums. He has only disdain for charlatans who make a living from cold readings in which a sitter is asked open-ended questions designed to elicit clues that aid the reader through careful listening, observation, and educated guesswork to say things that dupe the sitter into believing they are in touch with the beyond. Dr. Schwartz's protocols are designed to deny the medium assistance from any material source. Typically in his experiments, the sitter is placed out of sight of the reader it is instructed at first to make no response at all to the reader's comments. The reader is not told the sitter's name, gender, age, background, or any other details. A cold reader wouldn't have a clue how to proceed with these restrictions. Yet some of the mediums Dr. Schwartz has tested have given information with accuracy as high as 90%, correctly identifying names, relationships, life events, family secrets, and idiosyncratic details of all kinds, information they have no apparent means of knowing, information the sitters themselves don't know until they inquire of other family members sometimes. Okay, so there are stories from credible sources, and there are scientific studies of medium's accuracy. Still, it's pretty hard to believe until you've experienced it yourself. Many of you know that Michael Slack, our community life coordinator at First Parish in Cambridge, is an ordained minister in the Metropolitan Community Church. Few of you may know he's a former practicing attorney. But if you know Michael at all, you know he's nobody's fool. <laughs> Michael told me a story I have to share with you. And since no one can tell it better than he can, I asked Michael to tell it himself. Michael, please come on up. So for years, before ever meeting her, I'd heard a lot about the Reverend Dolores Berry. She's a black, gay woman in her 60s, a gospel singer, and evangelist in the Metropolitan Community Church. People told me that Dolores talked with angels. And although I deeply respected her desire to be a healing presence in LGBTQ people's lives, I thought her talking to angels was a bunch of nonsense, honestly. 
As it turned out, when I moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Dolores and her partner Judy lived not too far from where I lived, and so we became dear friends. When Dolores was ill, some of us went over and, and helped Judy take care of her. And one day, when I was helping them around the house, Dolores called me into her room. It was the morning time, and, and she was just sort of waking up. What happened next really changed my view of everything I ever thought I knew. She said that she woke up to someone talking to her about me. Skeptical, maybe more than a little skeptical. I played along, um, asking her who it was, and she told me it was my grandmother, my mom's mother. It threw me, um, it threw me for a lot of reasons, but especially because my grandmother was hands down the most precious person in my life growing up, and she had died only the year before, so my grief was still really fresh. I had also never told or talked to Dolores at all about any of my grandparents, and certainly not my grandmother. After catching my breath, I asked what grandmother was saying. What came out of Dolores' mouth were things that only my grandmother or my own mother could have known. She said that my grandmother was able to cook all the pies she wanted to now. And it didn't hurt her legs anymore to stand at the stove. My grandmother had stopped, my grandmother was known, widely known for her pies and cakes, and had stopped baking two years before because her legs hurt too much. She said that she was happy to be reunited with all of her children who died, including my Aunt Ada, who happened to be my mom's oldest sister and best friend. And Dolores called her by name and she had been reunited, according to Dolores, with the baby who died of whooping cough only weeks after her birth in the 1940s. This was something I only knew because my mother had told me years before. Grandmother also said, it was really cute. And these were Dolores' words. She said, your grandmother says it was really cute that you liked her red glasses. You see, my grandmother never liked the plain black glasses she wore for years. So one of the last things she asked was to be buried in a pair of red glasses. So my Aunt Nell, my mom's younger sister, went out and bought them for her, and those were the glasses she was wearing when my mom and her sisters closed the casket. Just before they did, I remember going up to the casket to look at my grandmother one last time, and I distinctly remember smiling and thinking to myself, Grandmother, you look amazing in those glasses. I never doubted Dolores again. And what I originally considered nonsense, I now think of as remarkable gifts. 
Thank you. Thank you, Michael. So is all this proof of authentic communication with the dead? Even when he finds accuracy as high as 90%, Dr. Gary Schwartz doesn't claim proof. But I think it's fair to call the evidence, both anecdotal and empirical, intriguing. To me, it suggests there may indeed be, as Shakespeare's Hamlet acknowledged, more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Dr. Schwartz distinguishes between what he calls true skeptics and pseudo-skeptics. True skeptics he describes as critical questioners. They want to see the data. True skeptics are open to new information that could lead potentially to changing their mind. Pseudo-skeptics, though they may claim to be open-minded, are resistant or even hostile to any evidence that might subvert or contradict their entrenched beliefs. Unitarian Universalists affirm as our fourth principle a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Let us be true skeptics, open to the truth, wherever it may lead, even if it leads to heaven. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.